0: Welcome to Science of the Noosphere. This series investigates the scientific foundations of the noosphere, the sphere of thought enveloping the Earth.
1: This series is the project of Human Energy, a scientific and educational organization that conducts research into the nature, history, and future of the noosphere. Human Energy conducts this research with the understanding that knowledge of the noosphere helps generate a third story
0: a new story that points the development of humanity and Earth in a positive direction. Okay, well, thank you, Tyson and Megan, for this wonderful conversation we're about to have. Thank you. Welcome. So I want to begin by the email. I wrote introducing myself to uh, Tyson, knowing that he's much in demand on the... uh, on the uh, speaking circuit. And so I titled my email, not your usual interview request. And I said that uh, I'm an evolutionary biologist by training, dot, dot, dot. And the reply I got was, uh, you had me at evolutionary biologist, been wanting to talk to one of your kind for ages. And the we- and the Weinsteins are too anti-woke to be into my work. And so there's the beginning of our uh, conversation. I'm going to want to know, Tyson, um, why it is that you've been wanting to talk to one of my kind for ages and why I've been wanting to talk to one of your kind for ages. And Megan, we need to bring you into this conversation. So, so the, the, the topic is indigenous society in relation to modern life and also in relation to evolution, the grand evolutionary story, in a, a beginning at a time when all of human societies were indigenous societies, by which we mean living very close to the earth, and typically at a very small scale compared to modern societies, for sure. And and that makes indigenous societies extraordinarily interesting to evolutionary biologists as a kind of the best estimate we have as to human origins and what made us so different from other species. And so this is what I do, and I have colleagues that we think we know but um but I've I've actually never bet on me never talked with an indigenous someone who, who identifies as an indigenous uh, um um uh, person. And so and so that's why I'm so interested to have this conversation. And maybe Tyson, you could just tell me why you've been waiting to to talk to someone of my kind and then and, and to kick us off and then we'll uh, bring Megan in and, and uh and we'll get going in, in earnest.
2: Well, I, I guess your your kind is 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 kind of all like you, as um, you know, like in the autumn of your of your life and discipline, um, <laughs> looking to talk to um, you know somebody from uh, from the kind of I guess you'd think Paleolithic kind of uh, communities that um, that form so much of the foundations of of, um, of a lot of of a lot of your theories. Um, a lot of uh, those, when we were cavemen assumptions and, and ideas and, and so much of which is, um, has come more out of pseudoscience than science, you know, so you're in an extremely, um, rigorous discipline, um, that, that has like way back in its origins, um, just some, some bits and pieces of, um, of wrong story that I, I feel like I can, uh, I can help you out with, um, patch those ones up. There's no reason for the entire thing to fall uh, just based on a couple of, you know, wrong stories at, at the, at the, base of it. Um, yeah. Anyway. So uh, yeah, I, I feel like there's uh there's a bit of a Holy grail in your discipline of looking for like, what's that, what's that secret force multiplier in between, you know, a dog thing turning into a whale thing. Like th- there's something that we're missing there. And I don't know. That's, it's, uh, we're not quite sure what it is either, but maybe we can find it, uh, find it together. Um, yeah, so I guess being a being a being a, a complete—I mean, what you call in the states a mutt—myself, you know, um, you know, culturally and biologically, and, and all of the rest, um, and you know, being a, an indigenous person of, of Australia, and you know, deeply embedded in in um, in the cultures of our peoples, you know, all over the continent. Um, yeah, and speaking from that liminal space as I am, um, yeah, I, I feel like I can, uh, uh, you know, mediate in between those spaces a little bit in playful and, and fun ways uh, that might spark some spark some interesting thoughts.
0: With your book, uh, Sand Talk, does a great job doing for our audience, Sand Talk, How Indigenous Thinking Can Save the World. And one of the things I, I like about this book is that you don't set yourself up as some pure vessel of indigenous knowledge. Uh, you uh, announce yourself as a mutt, as you just put it. And, um, and um, I want to bring Megan in. And so, uh, and, and tell us a little bit just about checking in check in as human beings, please. Um, Megan, how you enter this picture, how you guys got together, your husband and wife, your, the audience might not know that. And, um, and, uh, and, and, uh, Uh, your path basically to this place where we're talking about uh, indigenous society in relation to the past, present and future.
1: Okay. So there's a few uh, things that I need to hold in my head without kind of going into, you know, taking up the entire sort of two hours of our, (laughs) of our, of our our interview. Yeah. There's a, there's a bit of a story there, but um, um, so I just want to introduce myself then, um, you know, I guess first, uh, introducing myself as a human, um, but, but, uh, you know, uh, if we're going to sort of carve up, you know, my identity into these sort of labels and terms that, you know, uh, people sort of find helpful to kind of understand, um, what informs our behaviours, um, so, I, I, I do identify um, as a, I belong to um, the Barada and the Gapalbara peoples of uh, central Queensland. So, they are my mum's, um, uh, you know, um, uh, maternal, uh, you know, uh, clan groups. Um, there's some, um, you know, some... Uh, stolen generation, uh, some sort of lost history, um, in also on my mum's um, side. So I'm not um, completely informed about um, the entire picture of of her, uh, you know, like her her dad's, um, you know, sort of lineage. Um, But that journey is unfolding, which is exciting. Um, And then on my dad's side, um, you know, he's a a, a third generation um, Irish, um, you know, Australian settler. And so my identity is also, you know, one of um, cultural hybridity. um, And I'm sort of still kind of, I guess, um, you know, on this journey of finding out what that means. Um, And certainly through my um, work as a um, PhD. Candidate um, uh, you know I'm using a methodology of indigenous standpoint within that within that work and so that's really sort of um, put me in this um, situation where I'm having to think sort of theoretically in some way about you know who I am and um, what my experience is and what I can speak from so um, you know i I would not claim to to be an authority on Indigenous culture or, you know, um, you know, traditional practices, I'm in a position where I can sort of still learn. I've got a lot to learn um, about my, you know, um, my particular clan groups, um, you know, cultural practices. Um, And there's a lot that we have to sort of, um, I guess, whether it be restore or um, you know because of the the legacy of colonization um, there's there are things that have that are needing to be relearned um, and reawakened um, they are still there um, yeah and but I'm also you know deeply involved in this sort of you know this project of modernity um, you know here I am um, speaking um, you know via, uh, this you know technology platform um, which I'm not you know completely uncomfortable with um, I'm doing a um, a research project that's looking at um, the affordances of a particular blockchain technology and how that impacts um, indigenous governance um yeah so i'm um so i'm sort of yeah in a in a sort of a um, an interesting time in, in history, I feel, and it's kind of a bit of a, it's always a privilege, isn't it? You know, what, 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 how we can sort of as agents affect positive change in our world or, you know, positive is sort of a bit of a, um, what's the word, a subjective term anyway. But, um, to answer your question about how did Tyson and I meet, so, um, when I was doing my undergrad, um. I had an opportunity to, um, you know, go on a um, a, a cultural study tour uh, to, um, you know, some of the the big Ivy League um, universities in America and um, and in England, and um, as part of that organization. Um, which Tyson was involved with at, at the time. Um, he was running um, uh, academic enrichment, uh, an academic enrichment program um, that was, you know, doing a pilot um, in uh, Western New South Wales, and I was invited um, to be a mentor on um, one of those um, on a camp as part of that pilot um, pilot project, um, and. So, I was invited by Tyson and so there we are out in the middle of, you know, sort of Western New South Wales and, um, you know, Tyson kind of started talking about – i oh, i i can I can see him in my head. I just can't quite remember what the what it was that he was talking about, except all I was thinking was this guy is a complete nut um he's you know he's i i all I've got to do is just get through this camp, go home, and you know get on with the rest of my life so um you know and then and then there were you know sort of things that happened throughout the course of that of that week that were just. Completely transformative for me. Um, you know, there were you know really deep awakenings for me about um, you know getting my life back um, in rela- getting back, I suppose, into relation with um, you know Aboriginal community and and realigning my purpose with um, with that that work that is deeply you know um, important to me. Um, uh, you know, sort of. I guess, you know, the, mm. solving problems that have come about because of, um, you know, the, the colonial project essentially that is still playing out and then understanding, um, you know, myself within that colonial project and um, kind of thinking about what I can do Um Long yeah. story
2: short, I I brainwashed her, and now she's in my cult. <laughs> yes.
0: <laughs> the, uh, the, uh, that's the male version. That's the male version. So, um, so that's. Uh, no, that's that that not true. So, by the way,
2: that was a joke.
0: People, yes, thank that the record, yeah, yeah. The, new, the record has now been set straight. So, so. Uh, So, uh, okay, let's dive in. Uh, Oh, actually, Tyson, we need to, uh, uh, you need to have your turn as to uh, how you kind of found yourself to be a a, a spokesperson and interpreter of, uh, um, um, or you might even say a midwife of of, uh, indigenous knowledge in relation to the modern condition.
2: Oh, well, you see, that's a co-evolution thing with, uh, with, with Megs and I. I mean, I, I was just operating at uh, very much the local level, uh, but, you know, that's how I've been doing it for decades, just going around uh, with different, you know, local groups and working, um, you know, working, you know, deeply, um, you know, with Indigenous groups and communities all over Australia, um, you know, uh, helping to develop... You know uh, various different things and doing lots of different ceremony and uh, all kinds of stuff. Um,
0: but you grew up—you grew up with one foot kind of in the modern world and one foot in the in the indigenous world, right? So, so uh, from the very yeah, beginning,
2: I, I don't know how modern it was. So I, I grew up more on Australia's sort of frontier, um, you know, from about 1972, you know, um, through to the end of the 80s. You know, I um, yeah, I grew up in remote. <clears throat> remote locations, usually in places where there was some kind of, um, you know, uh, frontier extractive activity going on, like, um, you know, dams being built or, you know, mines being dug or, you know, things like this. So I in, kind of grew up on the sort of fringe camps of those places, uh, just moving around a lot. So I saw a lot of, you know, different places in Australia over that time. Um, yeah, and grew up sort of in the bush as it was dying in these various sort of uh zones that were being destroyed um you know so i i got to understand the land but then also you know watch that land be deconstructed and so understand it that way <laughs> as well there's nothing helps you understand something better than seeing it being uh, pulled apart uh, bit by bit and I, I guess i grew up that way
0: you have a beautiful passage in in sand talk in which you kind of talk about like waves of extraction, and uh, as I recall, you're you're teaching a group or something like that, and there they are, and you know the extraction has taken place in the past, and and those have come and gone basically, and then there's the current wave of extraction that everyone's kind of trying to adapt to, that they're going to be, you know, this or that, but that's going to pass too, and then 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 and so you had this sort of yeah. long long view. Uh, which is which you say is part of indigenous thinking to be more systemic than western thinking and uh, actually i wasn't intending to get to this as the first thing but we might as well
2: well i should finish the question first like uh sorry i was like i was right in the middle of that thing so i started out i was working very intensely locally so how did i become you know somebody who's you know speaking beyond the uh, in a broader sphere of influence around the place and that's uh that's basically because of Megan. I mean, that, so it, it basically is a sexual selection thing, that kind of <laughs> uh, selective pressure. I moved from so I moved from three and a half thousand kilometers north uh, down to Melbourne so that I could be with her, and then I had to try and find a way to survive in in a city, um, which I I'm, I don't know how to live in a city. So she's been kind of training me how to be a, a citizen dwe- a city dweller. And um, and of course I had to try and find some kind of marketable skills, um, <clears throat> and yeah, somebody offered me offered me a, an advance to write to write a book um, because I was doing a few articles here and there, and somebody saw it and would like to see that book, please. And uh, yeah, so that's that's how that happened, uh, kind of quite accidentally from my point of view. But then I guess from. You know, from the context I'm embedded in and the relations that I'm embedded in, it was was not unexpected. It was kind of just demanded. So, you know, um, I got got to bring home the bacon somehow. So that's how that works.
0: Evolutionary thinking about humanity has undergone a real sea change. And for most people, evolution is the way you describe it in your book. It's that iconic picture of the ape leading to the European male. It is, yeah. the, it is the caveman who clubs the woman and drags her back into the cave. And I'd just like to know the kind of the stereotype or, or not stereotype. I mean, actually, you know, receive scientific opinion. You have this wonderful uh, part of your book where you're in some classroom standing in front of some glass case with skulls and skeletons and 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 things like that, and the whole thing is set up to kind of reify European superiority uh and you're you know making fun of it, like immature schoolboys uh but uh maybe you could recount that event, but also what's behind the event in terms of what the way the thinking about evolution was configured to be linear and and to be more or less uh reifying. This sort of European uh, superiority. Before we get to the current version of, of evolution, which itself might, of course, might not be without biases, but but evolution as you knew it and 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 describe it in in your book would be a really helpful starting point.
2: Well, it's I, I don't think our stories are, are that far apart, you know, and I think it's um it's an un, it's always an unhelpful place to start in uh, in basic uh, basic critique. And in a standpoint of, um, you know, antipathy, it's the it's it's wrong place to start, you know, to sort of go, ah, well, that's racist. So all that discipline's racist, chuck it, you know. Um, so I, I think, I don't know, in my kind of cheeky way in telling that story, you know, I'm trying to uh, acknowledge that. And then we can laugh about that a bit together, but then get to the business of, of um, you know, bringing our stories together to find something that approximates the truth. You know um i yeah i I, i'm not really interested in in using my story to try and cancel your story and come out on top because i think that's basically what's happening in the world right now and which is the the cause of you know massive polarization and bloody um cultural warfare that's sort of tearing the planet apart as, as badly as um climate change is as far as i can see yeah so for me yeah it's it's about doing that having a laugh about those things together acknowledging those things and just then trying to figure out what what the story really is you know so for me it's not about uh it's 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 like yes there's that history of um you know that there was a lot of pseudoscience in 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 uh early kind of you know um i don't know just just really bad interpretations of darwin stuff um and, of course, the couple of things that he said, like, you know, um, the, you know, the advanced races will inevitably replace the <laughs> the inferior ones. You know what I mean? Like, uh, you know, that was kind of seized on. But they kind of really, you know, messed up his theories a lot, which, as you know, are more about cooperation than individual, um, you know, uh, bloody dominance and all that sort of thing. Survival of the fittest, et cetera, et cetera.
0: I mean this is a difficult a difficult thing that to be able to manage uh, yeah that if you look at historical figures, any one of them take darwin, i mean in some ways he did so much with his theory in other ways he was just uh captive of the Victorian age and he couldn't see past the assumptions of the Victorian age any better than anyone else.
2: You communicate through the memes, the memes that the other people around you are going to understand. I mean, you, you have to do that. I mean, I could I could talk how people are going to be talking in 100 years, but none of you would understand me. There would be no point, you know. So um, anyway, yeah, but uh, so anyway, it's uh, uh, they, it, they just went the wrong way with it you know, um, so there was a fair bit of pseudoscience that sort of came out of that. And, um, you know, that, that was kind of, uh, there in service of, um, white supremacy, but particularly Anglo supremacy, uh, because white was a very different thing back then. You know, um, Irish people were, Irish people were not white. Cockneys were not white. (laughs) You know, it was about Anglo supremacy and, you know, um, John Cecil Rhodes set up a foundation to, um, to expand the influence of, of Anglo, uh, you know, dominance and empire uh, to create the Anglosphere, to make it global. And that dream has been realised through that massive fortune, which is still in a foundation today, which is still, you know, taking care of that. The Anglosphere is a thing, you know. And I, I, it's, I don't know. I. I <sighs> Um, you know, white supremacy is a frame that helps helps with some things, but I think in terms of just for this conversation, um, yeah, I think I think that's that's we can park that there and come back to it if we need to. But I think mostly, you know, it's um, yeah, I, I think I think there are other other things to look at uh, that came out of the pseudoscience of the time. So we've acknowledged that that's the source of the pseudoscience. Now let's have a look at some of the fallacies that came out through that that have really, really impacted a lot of disciplines from psychology to economics to everything else, you know, because you basically, I mean, it, you, you might be familiar with the works of Napoleon Shannon, uh, who, who, yeah, that that uh, weird anthropologist, and it would be easy to just go, oh, he's a white supremacist, but, I mean, he was in service of something else. He was really promoting that kind of selfish gene, you know, uh, free market bloody rogue, winner-takes-all kind of philosophy um, that was, you know, um, since around around the Reagan and Thatcher era was all about sort of uh, fragmenting everybody socially, breaking everyone down, making everybody, you know, individual operators within an economy. Um, you know, to make that sort of economic model work. And so he studied the Yanomani Indians. He called them the most violent people on earth. He uh, instigated fights <laughs> with them and then escalated them and then recorded them, um, you know, and... And you know, basically, you know, uh, from that really flawed data, um, you know, showed evidence that that humans are selfish and we really just want to replicate our genes, um, <laughs> and that's all we're motivated by uh, is is our own replication and dominance individually. Um, but you know, I, I mean, a female anthropologist studying exactly the same people um, found exactly the opposite and wrote the book, the the Continuum Concept. Um, which which was about, you know, I mean, the most amazingly um, cohesive society with the absolute best child-rearing practices that everybody should be uh, <laughs> should be looking at for, for raising children. So, um, you know, it's very different viewpoints. So, I mean, I guess uh, we'll come back into this because the question that you asked is like uh, – there's about an hour in it, and I can't answer the whole thing, but but uh, these will be the narratives that we weave together. I know Megan's been uh, looking a little bit, uh, struggling with another project that's sort of grounded in uh, social brain theory, and um, there's at least two of the really big narratives that come through out of that early pseudoscience um, that is, is kind of really affecting that kind of the social brain theory that's the foundation of, of another project that she's working on uh collaboratively with another group so um yeah
0: well let me hear about that so let me hear about that what i want what i'm trying to get here is like your current your current take on evolution from your vantage and then we'll get to to um uh, my vantage
1: yeah um <clears throat> i i look i just want to kind of bring it back to you know thinking about the the continuum um you know because uh yeah, I, I, I want to kind of come back to, um, I guess, the foundations that have, um, I guess, have helped me to understand um, and make sense of this crazy project that I'm doing that I, that I, you know, sort of really struggled to make sense of. I was, you know, kind of thinking, well, how do I, um, you know, bring together these completely Um, antithetically sort of potentially logically antithetical sort of paradigms like blockchain and Indigenous governance and everybody you know sort of asks the same question it's like what the like what have those two sort of worlds got to do with each other and so that was a real struggle for me to kind of to you know pull that apart Um, and I had to just come back to um, you know the Indigenous ways of knowing, being and doing, there's an epistemological kind of, there's this ontological sort of, these two worlds that sort of have to, I had to sort of be able to, you know, sort of um, get a, yeah, uh, a rapid sort of understanding of um, what it is that I'm in, you know, and and this is the the interesting thing about the sort of standpoint um, kind of part of it is that you can't really um i mean i had an i had an experience of going to nepal during my um undergrad um a, a, on a cultural study tour and that was ab- about sort of taking us out of our um our cultural paradigm so that we could sort of understand what our you know, understand our own in some way, um so there was a sort of you know it was like an intercultural communications kind of um, you know aspect to that um, to that cultural study tour. and so that was kind of for me actually a, a big realization was that um, while I was there, I felt that my identity as an Aboriginal person was actually more secure. Um, when I was outside of Australia than it is when I'm here. Um, but that's kind of more of a political thing, which is not really what I'm talking about. So this, this, these ways, our ways of knowing, being and doing are informed by our relationship with land. And so this, you might have heard the sort of the, politi- the political kind of slogan, always was, always will be aboriginal land you know when people are kind of you know doing these protests for land rights and stuff like that it kind of goes a little bit deeper though it's not just about you know ownership in fact it's nothing to do with it's it's not 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 really I think even anything to do with ownership because because um our our traditional understanding of our relationship with place is not about ownership we are just part of it you know so our knowledge um, and our cognitive, um, you know, uh, and, and, you know, I I'm, I'm don't have a, a any expertise in sort of, you know, um, neuro-linguistic programming or, you know, cognitive sort of neuroscience or any of that kind of thing. But there's this relationship between spatial and um uh, you know as as babies as we 're growing up you know we have to go through these stages of being able to navigate our way through space um, that 's a really critical part of um, the formation of the human brain but then you know um, you know some of the theories that i 'm sure you 're familiar with David um, you know to talk about how our um, communication of um, what we know to be in place and in space um, informed our cognitive sort of development and our language and, and things like this. And so, um, you know, for me, when you talk about having one foot in both worlds, you know, my experience, um, you know, of, you know, growing up or, you know, being a human was also kind of like, you know, I sort of had a bit of one foot in both worlds in a way, but, my, you know, sort of the indigenous kind of side of things wasn't really about having a, a pedagogical kind of, you know, um, rationale of um, of this relationship with place. You know, I mean, I was growing up in, you know, north northern Queensland. You know, running around barefoot in the in the bush sometimes. Um, But then also, you know, going inside and playing tapes, and um, you know, and playing computer games, and all that kind of thing, and just, you know, um, but this, this, this understanding of place, um, and understanding of all things being informed by place and our relationship with place, that knowledge underpins law our Indigenous law and our Indigenous governance. And so um, so I sort of, you know, rather than kind of getting into this social brain theory, well, I guess it is, it is, you know, sort of related to that because, because social brain theory talks about, so um, Robin Dunbar, you know, um, a lot of his um, uh, research looks at um, social groups. So in in primates and the complexity of the relationships within these um, primate social groups um, and the complexity of those social groups um, uh, is there's a correlation between the complexity and brain size and particularly around the neocortex, the frontal lobes of the brain. And because of the computational sort of power, I guess to use that you know word, um, that's involved in managing these complex sort of social relations, the um, the limits of those social networks um, kind of numbers at around one hundred and fifty and so that was also the um famous dunbar number yeah so the famous yeah. dunbar number yeah and so um and so you know that's um uh been sort of observed in human um relations as well and and uh, i think I, i'm pretty sure that dunbar himself actually looks at um aboriginal societies and and sort of finds that pattern um within you know aboriginal tribal groups and so one of the things that's kind of interesting is that, you know, uh, Nick Szabo, um, you know, a blockchain um, sort of uh, developer um, and, you know, he's a, a, a complete kind of, you know, wonder brain, um, he devised blockchain um, for the purposes of being able to sort of overcome the limits of those, um, you know, those social uh, that that sort of number, you know, those social limits, those social constraints, essentially, um, at, because, you know, once you start getting outside of that, exceeding those group numbers, then the groups will start to they they either no longer cohere well, or they'll split off and create um, additional groups because you know the, you sort of you know aspects like trust will sort of fall away, and um, you know as those groups. Uh, Exceeds, so he's kind of, uh, I guess, suggesting, and it, you know, we're, we're sort of seeing it play out as to whether this theory is, you know, is true or not. Um, that that computer code can do that work for us. Um,
0: I mean, the whole point of blockchain so, yeah. is is to uh, is to guarantee trust. Is basically, it's a mechanism hmm. to guarantee trust. So, um,
2: well, trust is trust is the thing that doesn't scale. Beyond the the, the Dunbar number, and that's, well, that's, yes yeah, so and no.
0: So, <laughs> so, um, and there wouldn't be large scale society because transparency
2: is lost if uh, so, uh, if everybody doesn't know what everybody's doing. Yep,
0: yep, absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Let me, let me,
1: Well, just just to finish that point of of the con- the continuum, you know, um, what I think is is interesting is that as we're starting to sort of get into this this world of you know now now. Um, we're starting to get into the the world of data and big data sets and um, you know data being kind of like the um, a, a resource, I guess, if you think about it that way. Um, you know, we're starting to see issues around um, you know potentially data colonialism. Um I was just in a webinar last night, um, uh, you know t- uh, that was. Uh, uh, presented by Nick Caudry and um, Ulysses uh, Mayhass, um, and I think I may have pronounced his surname incorrectly. Who've just released a book called *The Costs of Connection*, um, and and that's looking about looking at how data is colonising human life and appropriating it for capitalism. To um, to quote the title of that book, but um, uh, you know. W- so the you know the appropriation of that of that data for capitalism you know we're kind of what's interesting is we're seeing um you know cooperative groups starting to sort of form um in in a way as a as a as a way of sort of trying to bring those smaller collectives back into relation with you know. With data, so trying to sort of you know give the sovereignty back to um, you know sort of individuals so that each each person can potentially have control over their own data. Um, So I just feel as though you know this continuum we've gone from you know land and our relationship with land to kind of like a more increasingly sort of abstracted relationship with um, you know the experience of being human, Um, but but always there's this. There's this, you know, this. Uh, I feel as though the the the, the collective uh, seems to want to come back. It seems to want to, you know, come back throughout that evolution. You know, our relationships are a really important aspect that continues to play out. I feel throughout this continuum of um, of evolution. So that's sort of
0: well let me let me use uh, some passages from uh, Tyson's book as a kind of a text to have you guys reflect upon and to make some what I regard as very key points. one of the points that you've just made as I would play it back is that cultures are first and foremost adaptations to the environment and so and so uh, if you take an indigenous culture of course it has to be related to the Land in a way that you can't really systematize. It might be that, you know, in a particular context, like you're standing next to a particular spot, calls for certain behaviors. And there's going to be, let's say, landmarks and stories or or something like that, just particular to that spot, because that's what's needed. It needs to call forth the right behavior. And then if you're operating in another context or another place, then there's a different set. Of, and so that's easy to understand as a as a set of adaptations to the environment that evolved by cultural evolution, but very difficult to systematize. In fact, why would you try to, it's kind of a Western conceit to think that there's some overarching logic to something like this and that you can abstract it from, from the environment because that's how contextual culture is and, and modern culture should be contextual like that too.
2: It does work if it's embedded. David, but if it's, um, if it's about trying to create a new layer of abstraction through biomimicry, that's, um, that's a different thing. It, that's, it's not responsive. You know, it's, it's not actually responsive to the landscape. Now, I, I did have, I did, I did hear you talking about some of your work that there's that work you did with the Bible where you were looking at the Bible as, and you were kind of mapping it almost like a, a genome and, uh, and then looking at how, you know, at which elements of that genome were being expressed in different contexts, you know, so like one sect over here would be highlighting different passages, you know, in in that genetic sequence, if you like, and then this sect over here in a different place, like they're in Alabama and they're highlighting these passages, so it's kind of like it's the same genome, however there's different parts of it being expressed in different places, so you're talking about that in terms of you know, a, a, a cultural sort of selection thing going on, um, but here's the thing: it's um, and you're looking at the there's that idea that it's story, story is the thing, and yes, we'd agree with you on that, but um, but here's the thing: it's not it's not in that text; it's not just in that story, you know. So for us, the genome, you know, using that metaphor, um, like the genetic material is the landscape itself. So the story. The story is in the landscape of a particular bioregion. You know, it is embedded in that landscape and they're one in the same thing. You know, so you are, it's not, I think, therefore I am, as we always say, it's, I'm located, therefore I am. Uh, that's uh, Comba Mary Elder, Mary Graham says that. So we, I mean, it's, it's, it's about where you're located in the landscape at any time, as you were kind of referencing before. But um, yeah, that, that's the genetic code. And in each bioregion, it's a different spirit of place. And so, therefore, different parts of that code are expressed. But it's it's still the same pattern, you know, uh, because in the end, we're still looking at the same sky. So in one bioregion here, we have a story for the Milky Way where it's a woman's hair. And in another one over here, we have a, um, a, a you know, to to the east of that, there's the story that it's uh it's a canoe. You know, now these people meet and have met, you know, for ceremony for many thousands of years and they tell those stories together. Those stories sit alongside. And the idea isn't, no, our story is the right story and we're going to go to war with you about that. It's these stories come alongside each other and they complement each other. So it's, it's, it's looking at the same thing. You know from a different angle uh, it's the same way that science works science works really and you you know when you're playing uh, billiards you're using newton and then when you want your phone to work you're using einstein It, it you just you shift between theories depending on the context and so each bioregion has its own unique you know selective kind of pressures you know what i mean um has its unique pattern of those and that's the spirit of that place expressing through the landscape into the culture if humans are embedded in the landscape then their culture their language everything will be a unique expression of that landscape and so that's why you end up with all that uh diversity
0: tyson did uh did uh, uh, bruce chatwick get it sort of right with his book Songlines? was there anything that how would you comment on and because that's, you know, a lot of people who read that book, Vice Health Included, and, and kind of get a sense of that. But I just wondered if you what your own commentary is and opinion is on. on, yeah, on there it. are
2: a lot of different uh, points of view on that uh, to, to the point where it's it's become a bit of a, um, you know, a tug of war item, you know, in the cultural wars. And I pretty much just try and stay away from those things. Um, but, you know, so, so a lot of people sort of say, well, Songlines, Songlines is a mistranslation and it's a you know it's an anglo word um that's sort of been invented that that doesn't really fit what the reality is uh there's another book called song spirals which is how the how a a, a number of uh female elders uh from a particular community are starting to describe them um but it's yeah it's a, it's that thing of trying to translate uh translate things from one language that's expressed you know from a particular bio region trying to translate that into a massive monolingual monocultural imperial you know trade creole <laughs> which is a mishmash of a lot of different languages so you know it's it's it is difficult to translate these things across so you know there's a lot of like i don't know Back, back and forth and bitchiness about that. But, um, you know, in the end, it, it's, it's enough to know that there are these, you know, the stories are embedded in the landscape. As I said before, they're expressed in the landscape. They're as much a map as anything else. You know, they're a path. You can walk those stories and you can branch off from those into other stories. And ultimately they, they all connect up, which is how our Dunbars used to scale and still do in some places where it's still working. But it's scaled as a sort of a, a syndication of syndicates, or a, like, what did you say, Megan? Uh, a cooperative of cooperatives. Um, you know, it sort of scales fractally in that way, and through these connections in a kind of continental common law, you know, around things like, um, you know, serpent, uh, serpent story that binds everything together, many different stories and just our um, Bora bora as a ceremonial sort of uh, thing that goes all over the continent. Um, you know, these things, these things are a continental common law and they allow us to sit together and bring our stories alongside each other because we're seeing the same aspects of creation like the Milky Way, but from different bioregional perspectives. And we really, really, really like as human beings to be able to see things from multiple perspectives. If we're all standing on the beach, David, and you're looking, we're looking at the full moon reflected on the ocean, you're standing over there and you're saying, well, that moon reflection is near those rocks there. And I'm standing further up the beach and going, are you insane, David? That moon reflection is like right out in the middle of the bay. What are you talking about? And the fact is that we're both right and we're both wrong. And if you get a thousand people on that beach all sharing their story of where the moon reflection is... Then you will arrive through the aggregate of all those stories, which are right and valid. Through the aggregate of those, you arrive at the conclusion that the moon is shining on every part of the ocean at once.
0: Yeah, so that's uh, well well put. But uh, So now I'm going to read some passages and then to have you reflect on these passages and then to bring some general points out while we do this. Here is, I think, maybe my favorite passage from your book. Um, <laughs> it's about a page long, but worth every word. Um, emu is a troublemaker who brings into being the most destructive idea in existence i am greater than you you are less than me this is the source of all human misery aboriginal society was designed over thousands of years to deal with this problem some people are just idiots and everyone has a bit of idiot in them from time to time, coming from some deep place inside that whispers, you are special. You are greater than other people and things. You are more important than everything and everyone. All things and all people exist to serve you. This behavior needs massive checks and balances to contain the damage it can do. There are a lot of stories that explain how all this began, and as a brolga boy, traditional enemy of emu, I know them all. My favorite one comes from forgive me for mispronouncing what comes next, Noyengar, Elder, Noel, Nanup, and Perth, who tells the dreaming story of a meeting in which all the species sat down for a yarn to decide which one would be the custodial species for all creation. Emu made a hell of a mess, running around, showing off his speed and claiming his superiority, demanding to be boss and shouting over everyone. You can see the dark shape of Emu in the Milky Way, Kangaroo, his head is the Southern Cross, is holding him down. A kidna is grasping him from behind, and the great servant is coiled around his legs. Containing the excesses of malignant narcissists is a team effort.
2: In the world that we're living in now, there's this dichotomy. You know, you're choosing, you have to choose one side or another or a point on a continuum between left and right. You have to choose, okay. And the left basically is about, uh, are you for the collective? And the right is about, are you for the individual? You know, um, but in our way, in, in our Aboriginal world, we don't have, we don't have those binaries in that way. You know, fresh and salt are supposed to come together and mingle. We have what, what are called, uh, dyads. You know, they're almost like pairs, like kinship pairs in our kinship system. So we have dyads. These two opposing forces, they're two sides of the same coin. So you as an Aboriginal person, as a human being, as all people for most of human history, you must express your unique individual fabulousness, and you must look out for your individual needs. But at the same time, you are bound within your relational obligations to the collective, and that balances those two things all the time. But there's a tension and balance and it's seesaws. Now, sometimes that gets out of whack. So you get somebody who gives into narcissism, to hubris, to self-interest, and they split from the group and they, they do something horrible. They do something terrible. And you get the tragedy of the commons occurring. You get multipolar traps occurring that way. But you know what? That's a necessary part of creation. That emu in that creation story is not a bad guy. That was important because you actually need that. You need periods of hysteresis that are caused by that. Otherwise, the pattern will keep replicating the same way over and over and over again in this collective utopia. And what happens to that from an evolutionary perspective, bros? You're going to get entropy. You're going to get a uh, (laughs) a very sick, slow, stupid... Uh, system arising from that that cannot last. So you actually need those little disruptions. You need those ones, and that's part of that's part of the force multiplier that uh, that creates these massive evolutionary leaps. I think I've got one minute left of the tight five. Um, so you know that that goes part of the way. We can see this in our stories uh, for how different creatures evolve in in a, from a dreaming perspective um so particularly you see it in the chimera species um sort of like your platypus story uh but also i prefer to think about the eel tail catfish now this is this is an insane thing all right an eel tail catfish it's definitely a catfish It has the whiskers, and it also has the stings in exactly the same place, the barbs, the poisonous barbs, with exactly the same kind of toxin as a regular catfish, right, Um, right there under its fins. But its entire body is covered with exactly the same uh, sticky substances you get on an eel, like chemically exactly the same. It has the same markings as an eel. It has an eel's tail. How the hell did that thing happen? You know, and we have story for that. We have story for these things. We have story for how the platypus happened, you know, with our water rat and duck story. How did that thing end up with DNA from each of those things? How do you get these chimera species? And basically always those stories are about a transgression. They're about somebody who went out in their own self-interest and broke the pattern, you know. So it's in an interesting way it's the pattern breakers and it's the transgressors and the law breakers, the narcissists that actually create the mutations that make, <laughs> that make evolution unfold. Um, so, you know, that, that's the worst thing to have to come to grips with is the fact that it's your trumps that, um, <laughs> that make things happen, um, you know, from an evolutionary perspective.
0: I think that a point that I want to make is that so much of this is in accord with the current um, uh, current edition of evolutionary science, and what you call, I mean, narcissism is basically the original sin of uh, not just human behavior, but for all social species. All social species, there is this tension. Between I am greater than you, that's an evolutionary force. I am greater than you is an evolutionary force, and it basically has disruptive outcomes—not benign outcomes, disruptive outcomes of the Trumpian variety. That when I basically claim myself to be better than you, that indeed is going to benefit me, but it's not going to work out well for the common good, and that's why restraint is needed. So it takes a village to restrain a narcissist. I think is not only a human universal at all scales, it's a biological universal, a biological universal, that whenever you find a cooperative social species, they too have solved the narcissism problem. Cancer is an example of a narcissistic, yeah. is emu-like behavior within our bodies, and our cancer prevention mechanisms are the suppression, the suppression of that.
2: It's great how you said, uh, takes a village to, to uh, contain a narcissist.
0: You said that, not me.
2: Well, it's, it's like, you know, the, the, it's that, that saying it takes a village to raise a child. Uh, raising a child, that's what it is. It's containing a narcissist. It's actually trying to impart trying to impart that, that tension of balance between your individual needs and your collective uh, obligations. Yeah.
0: And what we can say is that, as you say, basically, is that uh, indigenous societies have been honed like a polished stone over thousands of years to perfect this. At the particular scale and in the particular ways that they that they do that's something and you can also say that modern society has run amok, and that basically emo like behavior has run amok uh escaped the escape that's what the neoliberal model is, and although it is indeed innovative in some ways, primarily it's just plain fucking disruptive is what it is yeah. And so, and it's not going to correct itself. It's not going to correct itself until we restrain that balance. And once again, we take and make a team effort to restrain narcissism. So this is something of tremendous value. Indigenous societies exemplify it. And so, I just think it made me so happy when I read that because I found it so in accord with the way our scientists are are. Are thinking about it now. Let me go right to another passage because it's on the same topic.
2: Well, there's just quickly, there is a there is an adaptive kind of a immune response uh, from the sort of I I guess the noosphere. I don't know the from that global sort of system of culture, Um, not the noosphere, but you know what I mean. Um, um, Yeah, China. So you're going to get, in response to that aggressively individual, you know, economy and culture that's destroying the planet, um, the system has thrown up an immune response in a very aggressively collective um, uh, culture to oppose it. Um, I just thought I'd throw that in there.
1: And sorry, David, do, um, you know, you asked me to respond. Um, I, I, I do have something to contribute and it's, you know, we, we're seeing this playing out in you know, we're seeing this playing out in uh, w- with big players like say um I don't want to I don't want to name large social media um corporations, for example. Um
0: Does it begin um, with F?
1: It could, um it could begin with a G, it could begin with an A. You know, these large media corporations that um that we're sort of seeing that have essentially kind of taken um you know o- open source codes um you know um uh resources that w- that sort of were at- intended for the commons and for the benefit of you know these the sort of um you know the I- the ideals of of you know the visions of the internet you know the ideals of the of the cyberpunks that um you know it, it was and they've taken those codes and kind of, you know, it, whether it's the demands of the neoliberal model that has kind of shaped the way that that, that these, that, you know, that it's sort of played out where you've got these, um, you know, because if you've got something that, um, you know, a model where the imperative is to sort of, um, you know, increase returns for the shareholders, um, then you're, you're, you know, sort of, you um, imperative as a um, a CEO or, you know, is to sort of, is to increase the market share for the shareholders. So, you're going to have these, you know, there's kind of, the system actually creates narcissists. So, there's something about, in fact, the system that is corrupted um and that's what has to change but what's fascinating is that the um the system even though we have this corrupted system that that demands narcissism or narcissistic sort of tendencies you're still seeing the kind of um you know something that's that's human that is not part of this um i think it precedes the neoliberal kind of um you know paradigmatic sort of values and that's coming back and kind of going you know i mean you know those big um you know the 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 what is it i don't know <laughs> there's an acronym is it it's faga or or whatever they are you know these big big um sort of media you know sort of entities um you know they they've they've come out of innovation they themselves were a response to um, you know, sort of, um, uh, what do you call it? Like disruptive innovation. They started as startups to kind of, you know, to 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 um, uh, to provide for the needs of um, you know collectives and socialities and stuff like that. But then they've become the cancer, and it's so frustrating that you know that that there's something inherent in this um, neoliberal code that it. It's like there's a cancer in it, in, in, inherent in it, um, you know. And so we're seeing now there are these, you know, platform co-ops or data co-ops or you know, sort of these new kind of movements that are kind of saying, well, how do we, how do we get the sort of sovereignty and the autonomy and the sort of collective action back? How do we redistribute the power so that we? Um, can keep these malignant narcissists in check, and we're seeing that team effort that sort of you know um, that is uh, you know uh, yeah, you know these small little kind of of um, projects that that are startups themselves and um yeah i I guess it's just kind of how do we sort of reset the code of the the model the economic model that we're under to um to reset the system,
0: yeah. Well, so uh, and a, a great book on this topic, which you might well be familiar with, is Timothy Wu's "The Master Switch," which shows how and 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 all of these technologies, starting with the telegraph and the radio and television and, and everything, um, has a tendency to be captured by monopolies, and then um, and then the innovation kind of drains out of them, and then and then forms around the edges and and um, and all of that. So what we have here are tremendously general principles in play, which manifest themselves in the nature of indigenous societies and then manifest themselves once again in a modern context. In fact, they've manifested throughout history because it is indeed the original sin of social life in all species of this conflict between lower-level striving. Buddhism said it, you know, life is suffering. Suffering is caused by craving, desires. And then we have to overcome that. So it's, it's embodied everywhere because that's how fundamental it is. And so, and, so, um, and so I think there's a wonderful overlap here. But now let me go to the next passage, which is on this topic. And it has to do with the relationship between individual and community. So you say, in my community, there is a phrase which is repeated daily, nobody boss for me. Yet at the same time, each person is bound within complex patterns of relatedness and community, communal obligation. Indigenous models of governance are based on respect, I'm going to use that word, respect, for social, ecological, and knowledge systems, and all of their components are members. There's a kind of a subordination that takes place, which is implied by the word respect. Complex kinship structures reflect the dynamic design of natural systems through totemic relationships with plants and animals. Um, Respectful observation and interaction within the system with the parts and the connections between them is the only way to see the pattern. You cannot know any part, let alone the whole, without respect. And now let me go to one other place with which you say, this kind of cultural humility is a useful exercise in understanding your role as an agent of sustainability in a complex system. It is difficult to relinquish the illusions of power and delusions of exceptionalism that come with privilege, but it is strangely liberating to realize your true status as a single node in a cooperative network. There is honor to be found in this role and a certain dignified agency. You won't be swallowed up by a hive mind or lose your individuality you will retain your autonomy while selectively being profoundly interdependent and connected. In fact, sustainable systems cannot function without the full autonomy and unique expression of each individual part of the interdependent whole. So here what we're doing is we're, we're articulating something where there's this kind of balance between the part and the whole, the individual and the system. And you do it beautifully. And I think here we've identified another universal. This is something which manifests itself in well-adapted indigenous societies. It manifests itself elsewhere, and where it's not manifested, it needs to. And when I talk, for example, with enlightened corporate leaders, including one that I work with named Toby Shannon, who is the COO of Shopify, and Shopify is the anti-Amazon, it's the second largest online retailing outlet in the world. And But they have a very different model. And when you hear Toby talking, it's like this. He sees Shopify isn't a member of a worldwide ecosystem. Shopify wants to be present a 100 years from now. Shopify knows that the way that it thrives is by causing the ecosystem to thrive. It's not hard. It's not hard. In fact, the more we can persuade people to adopt that relationship in which they maintain individuality and and can have the great status that we all want, frankly, um, but, do, but does it in the context of contributing to a larger system, that's what describes indigenous societies, what describes some other societies, and what should describe all societies is the way that I would put it, because very deep functional principles are in play.
2: It comes back to scale, and I guess if you tilt too far towards the individual side, then um, um, scale becomes scale becomes an issue. So in in our law, we we have ceremonies for increase, not for growth. You know, so our economies, our ecologies are based on increase, and that's not about increasing the size of the system or the territory or the being. You know, it's not, it's about increasing the complexity within it. It's about increasing the relationships and the combinatorials that are going on in there. So we focus on that increase. And we have a lot of stories um, that basically reflect the idea of the maximum power principle, you know. Um, that you know, when something tilts out of balance and uh, you know tips too too much towards the in, the individual interest, then it grows, and that's okay for a fair bit because you actually you get good uh, economies of scale there, and that's 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 important. You know, in evolution, you know, a system will grow, a uh, species, a being, you know, will grow in size and it will gain like twenty five percent. Efficiency at each sort of doubling, so you end up with you know your blue whale, for example, which is a hell of an efficient thing, but you can't get any bigger than that because that's the maximum power principle. You know, beyond that it becomes inefficient. Um, now we have heaps of dreaming stories that warn us against that behaviour of scaling too far uh, individually. That there's a fair bit of it that's healthy. But if it's not balanced within the rest of the evolutionary context around it, the rest of that fitness surface, you know, like for example, you know, you can't have a, a, a lion that's suddenly a hundred times stronger than all the other lions. You know, it, it, it has to be responding to all of, you know, it's, it's that coevolution thing. Otherwise you end up with everything dead. And we have all heaps of stories about that. And it's usually about giant beings that started out smaller and then suddenly got bigger. It's like a Dr. Seuss book, you know? Uh, so we have that Tidlik the frog, you know, who drank up all the water and grew to a gigantic size. Uh, we have a huge codfish uh, dreaming on a number of songlines that go right through the Murray-Darling Basin and right down to the sea. Um, you know, the, these are really important stories, but they're usually about one being that has scaled too far selfishly and is now destroying the landscape in some way. And it always ends, it always ends um, with with some other entities, uh, you know, Aboriginal people um, hunting that thing down. Oh, there's a giant dingo story. It's exactly the same thing. But it always ends with that thing being hunted down, killed and distributed throughout the system. For A, a so it's distributed evenly throughout the system, like all the waters throughout the landscape from Tiddalik the Frog, um, and even just the body, okay, the, and the genetic material of the giant codfish. It is split up, uh, not just into, so it's distributed in number, you know, throughout the system, but also diversity. So it can't just be all codfish in that system. That codfish is broken down to become thousands of different fish species that are then distributed throughout the system because you need that diversity throughout the system. Now, any one of those species can increase in number and can increase in uh, complexity, efficiency, you know, a million different ways. But, you know, the size of any single entity cannot you know, scale too much. Otherwise, you know, the law of the land, the dreaming is going to give you a big antitrust smack out of nowhere and uh, sort you out that way.
0: Well, this uh, brings me, I have two more major points to cover. Let me progress to the next one, which has to do with... Megan, yes.
1: David, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I I kind of, I also just, I just want to, you know, I want to add... You talk about respect, you know, being so. I, for me, I, I feel as though there's a, you know, your question, um, or, you know, your, I, I, you know, what I heard in, in, in your, when you raised this point about the, you know, the no boss kind of governance model, but then also, you know, this respect, you highlighted respect. Um, And and you know you talked about you know single nodes and agent agent of change um, balanced with the independent whole interdependent whole or you know sort of uh, an interdependent whole and it made me think about well you know so so then what are the protocols you know what are the protocols that kind of um, inform um, sanctions for bad behavior Um, and um, and and it also made me kind of think about um, you know it uh, when you it made me think about when you talk about care uh sorry respect i think about care and so um i think about and particularly with any any healthy system has to have care and it has to have freedom in it and it has to have agency and i was in i was in And and agency. um, I was in a. um, I'm doing part of a a research sprint at the moment through the Berkman Berkman Klein um, Center, um, and and we had Mark Sermon from um, uh, from Mozilla come and speak to us, and he um, defined um, empowerment in the data context um, as meaning whether a person can have power and agency and the ability to act in the digital space. So that's in the data context. Now empowerment in any um, context really means in a, in ensuring that that an individual agent can have power um, and agency and the ability to act. And so, that's freedom. And so, when, and I, one of the theories that I'm sort of looking at in, in my PhD is governmentality. And so, basically, that is, you know, I don't know if you know much about Foucault's governmentality theory, but it's, it's really, you know, it's kind of like the centre the, the, the power centre distribute or, or sort of um, having their um, – it's basically getting the, um, the needs of the centre – kind of being performed by the agents kind of out you know at the, right out to the peripheries so you as a um you know um an entity in relation with the state kind of you start performing the state's functions essentially and you start kind of self-policing in a way and you start limiting your own freedoms um and so in some way like um what i think is uh, what i see happening is there's a similar kind of there's an issue here and it's it's related to that that governmentality where um you know instead of the center kind of you know performing the st- the state role or the you know um Limiting the freedoms deep out into the system. Instead, we have to flip that model and enable agency to be deep into the system, like go to go right out to be distributed. Um, you know, right out to the node, so that every node has the ability to behave freely, um, and then then the needs of that node and and you know the the smaller communities they will understand their own needs and they will respond to what their needs are you know if there's if there's a you know an edu- a need for education they'll you know they'll sort of um, respond to that and kind of create systems that enable that to happen appropriate to their own needs. If there's a need for, I don't know, uh, whether it be, you know, increasing well-being or health or if there's, you know, they can be more responsive then and they don't have to be laboured by bureaucratic sort of, you know, um, the burdens that, that, that just stop them from being able to act. I mean, we've, we've got a, um, a relative in a, in a remote community at the moment who's just had both of their cars smashed in by somebody who's got mental health issues. And because of their remoteness, um, you know, um, it's, it's not because of their remoteness, It's because of the limitations of the system that don't enable them to be able to respond to how can they make sure that they're safe, how can they, um, you know, uh, get those vehicles back into sort of, uh, you know, being able to respond immediately to what their needs are without it being prohibitively expensive or... You know, and so it's about kind of ensuring that there is freedom and agency that goes right out to the margins as remote as it, as it needs to be without having to rely on, you know, these arm, you know, beyond arm's length kind of centers of power that essentially don't care. They don't care because they don't have to. And so care and respect, it's not just respect. That has to be sort of centred across, uh, distributed across the system. It's care, and it, we have to make sure that all of those um, that that's the value that comes through, that enables care to be um, the driving force in some way, um, you know, for every every action David, David in the system.
2: David often says something, Megs, that's a, a that sort of expresses that paradox beautifully i think it's something along the lines of and you you can correct me david but it's like um, uh, self-interest only confers advantage within the group within a group and if you start to think that through it's like uh, it it is beautiful because it's it's it just demands a thought experiment immediately and you start extrapolating that out it's like ah yes, yeah, so you do get evolutionary advantage you know it, Within the group, you know, w- within what the group has established, you know, the infrastructures that are established there, you can get in there and, and pollute those commons and and uh, and get an individual advantage. But then that destroys the group, and you're you're gone anyway. It doesn't it doesn't con- it doesn't confer advantage to your group in amongst other groups. <laughs> you know what I mean? It means your group is going to die, and the more cooperative groups are going to replace you yeah um, yes, yeah, so that's kind of beautiful.
0: Megan, uh, uh, you raised a bevy of issues that I want to address. The meme is selfishness beats altruism within groups, altruistic groups beat selfish groups, everything else is commentary, so there's your meme but uh, but bevan, you have thank you, uh, thank you Tyson, for resonating uh, to it as I resonate to through these passages of your of your book, but uh, you've raised so many issues, uh, Megan. one of them is the need for new cultural evolution. What you're saying is is we have situations now, for example, people in remote areas they're they're not connected the way they should be. they need to be better connected. That would almost certainly require technological um, a technological component uh, to it. This is culture basically not working the way it should, and new cultural evolution is is required for it to. Uh, we need to be quite deliberative about that. And uh, and um, uh, and uh, the need for new cultural evolution. And another point is is that cultural evolution takes place whether we want it to or not. And if we don't manage it, then it's going to create problems, not solutions. We don't stop cultural evolution; it's happening, and it's happening in indigenous societies. And here's where where you speak to that, Tyson. Another passage that I love. Um, uh, Blackie talks about decolonizing movements that have been so intent on rejecting Western systems of thought. They focus too much on ways of knowing rather than ways of being, causing a lot of indigenous knowledge to be lost in theory rather than being embedded in daily life. On the other hand, a recent obsession with ontology has swung the pendulum back the other way as people seek authentic but individually unique foundations for the traditional knowledge they report On on In various media. And all of this branding and rebranding of indigenous knowledge, things can become lost or contaminated. This is not like replacing wood with, I love this part, this is not like replacing wood with roofing iron in the manufacture of fishing boomerangs, that's fine, as it demonstrates continuity and adaptivity in response to change. It's more like somebody making up a dreaming story about the Japanese visiting Australia thousands of years ago when they hear Old Man Juma joking about Blackfellow ninja stars. Indigenous knowledge is constantly under threat from such weird amendments and misinterpretations from within and without, from within and without. The physical apocalypse of invasion came with a bang, but our cultural armageddon is more like a, more of a whimper. A gradual contamination and unraveling of communal knowledge by exceptional individuals, and so I think this is so profound. Basically, it's not as if indigenous knowledge is this this thing that's preserved intact and that we can return to, not at all. And especially if it gets changed in, especially if it gets changed in a way that that destroys the the restraints of the emus, then You know, if if it gets reconfigured so that the emus can run amok, then that's what will happen. Even within indigenous society, you don't need outsiders to do it for you because you've disrupted the checks and balances, right?
2: Yep. And look, the biggest contamination of our culture is in two Grand narratives, big stories, uh, very big wrong stories uh, that have been absolutely necessary to, um, you know, developing a, a free market economy with individuals running out, running around, uh, just everybody self-interest, corporation unto themselves, to create this. I don't know. This lie of the the. Free the the invisible hand of the marketplace, the rising tide that lifts all boats, the etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. Now the 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 two wrong stories that a lot of us that's contaminated our culture more than anything. And you see it coming through the social brain theory um, that that uh, that Megan was we were talking about yesterday because Megan was looking into it as part of this project. It was part of the theoretical base, and it, so it's this idea <clears throat> that uh, you know primates. You know, in order to achieve a kind of a self-conscious consciousness of whatever it is that um, you know is distinguishing our amazing brains or whatever, uh, is that they arrived at that through through two two massive evolutionary pressures. Uh, one of them is, is scarcity of food. You know, so that your social group ends up having to develop more complex, cohesive sort of uh responses evolutionary responses and the other one was um uh an increase in uh in predators in in in, uh, an increase in the amount of predation you know within the the ecology so it's the idea is that it's those two pressures um, that actually produ- ends up producing a brain that's capable of that. So for, for a start, we get these two stories coming out. The first story is the idea of harsh survival, you know, so that, you know, your classic story of, um, <clears throat> you know, nature red in tooth and claw um, that, you know, it's uh, there hasn't been enough to eat and there's always this scarcity and only now we're starting to uh, achieve some kind of abundance, uh, as human beings, through agriculture, through you know uh, civilization, etc., and I don't, it's just it's just not true. Like we know this not just from our stories, but even from our our, our subsistence practices on wasteland now that's been completely destroyed, there is still an abundance of food to be found there. We know there's always been heaps of food, even in poor seasons, and even on poor country, there is an abundance of food. So we're, we're aware of that. But we've taken it on board in our culture, this idea that we were surviving in a harsh landscape, and it was really tough, and so therefore we're really tough people. We've taken on board that story and incorporated it into our culture, um, you know, and it's also, that's also come along with, you know, ideas about gender divisions of labor and all this sort of thing. <clears throat> the other story that's the big problem there um, is the idea of predators, you know, that uh, that the human brain and consciousness, you know, has, has evolved out of hypervigilance. And that's why the Cro-Magnon brain was 10% larger than, you know, Homo sapiens brain because they had to be hyper vigilant all the time. They're walking out on the plains. They never know when a tiger's going to jump out and get them. Um, and the, the fact is that if you spend any time with Indigenous people, you, you understand that there's a completely different relationship with predators because we always know where they are. There's nobody in my community who's ever, ever been taken by a crocodile, for example. There's no story about it. There's not even a dreaming story about it because you always know where the crocodiles are from a thousand seasonal indicators and you have relationships with that crocodile. Traditionally, as a man, your first haircut as a baby would be tied onto a baby crocodile's head. That crocodile would be released and you would have a relationship with that crocodile. You could call that crocodile to you. And there's photographic evidence of this, of all the men, you know, in my family swimming out into the river, holding up the tails out of the water of their crocodile. We have relationships with predators as human beings. We always have. We haven't been walking around. It All of these pseudoscience, it comes out of this idea of people imagining themselves bear grills dropped back in the shed with no Uh, rule of law and, you know, minimal equipment and having to survive in a harsh landscape. They'd be worried about predators. They'd be worried about getting enough food. And then once they sort out that part of Maslow's Pyramid, then they're moving up to the next one. What am I going to do next? Well, there's no rule of law, so I'll probably just be raping and killing, you know, and so therefore, (laughs) you know what I mean? And all the stories of you know the violence of human beings and the nastiness of human beings and how we're a virus and a plague upon the world that's destined to destroy it and each other. War is as old as you know of course. you know. So you get uh, Noah Yuval Harari. He, he he can quite seriously you know put on a page as if it was scientific fact. You know um you know a third of all Paleolithic deaths were homicides. Where the hell what data set are you looking at to arrive at that? you know that's just pseudoscience well it's i'm going to push just back from people projecting no, gonna... themselves back into an environment that they don't understand and could never understand
0: no tyson i'm going to push back on some of this, which is good that's what's fun <clears throat> yeah um, and um, and I think and I can tie it back to Megan uh, and when we think about uh human cultures as ecologically, it's adapted to various niches. There's many niches out there that are inhabited by human cultures. And one of those niches, one, one axis of variation is studied by my colleague, um, um, Michelle Gelfin. It's an axis that's called from tight to loose, tight to loose. And a tight culture has strong norms, strongly enforced. You really got to toe the line in those cultures. Those are not innovative cultures. You have to basically, because solidarity is so important, basically group level solidarity in warfare or in response to other collective threats is so important that these whole cultures are adapted for collective action. And because those selective pressures don't change very much over the decades and centuries, there's really not that much need for innovation. It's not as if the next generation is going to be different from from the last, quite the contrary. And so So those are the cultures on the tight end of the continuum. Then there's the loose end, in which is much more flexibility, much more individual freedom to do what they want. And, of course, those are the innovative uh, uh, cultures. Nowadays, we really need innovative cultures. And so when we design our current and future cultures, please let them be innovative. Let's design them on that. But on the other hand, we've seen with COVID, COVID has been one great natural experiment, you know, which, which cultures responded better or worse to this collective threat? Which actually got their acts together and which ones didn't? There's a natural experiment for you, which maps on to tight and, tight and loose pretty darn, pretty darn, um, uh, pretty darn well. And so, as good ecologists, we should really expect to see that kind of cultural variation in indigenous cultures, no less than Modern cultures, and so this whole concept of tight and loose was actually um, um, uh, first articulated by an anthropologist. His name was Pelto, and he basically he categorized indigenous cultures this way. Why shouldn't he? And then Michel actually characterized modern nations that way, comparing, for example, Germany and Brazil would be an example of a tight culture compared to a loose culture. One clever way that she measures it is to go to any city in the world and look at all the public clocks, all the clocks that are for the public, and just record what time they say. In a tight culture like Switzerland or Germany, there'll be a lot of agreement. And in a loose culture like Italy or Brazil, (laughs) there's your proof, there's your proof. I mean, can't argue with that. Um, And so uh, I have a German colleague, He's a very famous economist. If he's one minute late for a Zoom meeting, he just profusely apologizes. He just he spends a minute talking about how apologetic he is begging for my forgiveness because he's a minute.
2: So consensus is the variable that's measured for um, for Thai culture.
0: Well, in that case, I mean, there's lots and lots and lots of measures um, that uh, of this, and so I mean, there's a big. A big uh, uh, literature, so, so I think that this is the kind of of um, expectation of, of 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 cultural variation. There's no single thing we can say about cultures, at least not in these respects. And on that on that point, I think there are some cultures, old and new, indigenous and modern, where there was chronic between group conflict at various scales, chronic, never ending. And when I, when I uh, you know, I, I had a conversation with His Holiness the Dalai Lama uh, a couple of years ago, organized by Mind and Life Institute. And in preparation, I did a lot of reading. I read a lot about Tibet, the history of Tibet and Tibetan um, um, uh, Buddhism. And, and the cultural evolution of Buddhism took place in the context of Quranic warfare, Quranic warfare at various scales, never-ending Warfare, and so it, it, it is indeed the case that there are some cultures, not all cultures, but some cultures, in which a very large proportion of the men die violent deaths that 's just the way it is and and um, and um, okay. the one one that i 'm familiar with
2: well well, it is now, but those cultures don 't survive more than a few hundred years
0: well, no. <laughs>
2: those cultures are wiped out when they go bad that way. You can't, uh, so if, if, if you, if you've got, some, if you've got a culture that's more than a thousand years old and it's been involved in, in violence for, uh, with another group for that entire time, then what you have there is a very, um, ritual, highly ritualized rule governed, um, uh, uh, violence sort of technology, conflict technology, you know, um, yeah, that's that's been developed whereby uh, both of those cultures can be sustainable over the long term, but if it is a, as you're saying, like um, you know, hyper violence, chronic violence, um, n- no, no culture will survive that for more than a couple of centuries.
0: i beg big to differ, and so there's a point of disagreement that we can carry carry on. But look at animal societies. You look at animal societies. Some of the. Um, um, primate societies that are despotic, a lot of conflict, only a little bit of cooperation. Uh, uh, What that means is that basically the emu-like behavior is prevalent. The ability to restrain emu-like behavior is limited. And so therefore, these are emu-like societies. And that's the end of the day. They've been that way for thousands of years. will be that way for thousands more years. It's just, unless you change the structure, why would you expect anything to change? I mean, it's just... And so that's the way it is. And if you look at human,
2: Well, can, can, can I ask you, like, I, so I think uh, China is a really good example. So if you look back at like medieval uh, times and even before that. Um, so, you know, they had gunpowder before anybody else. And they used it with fireworks. But it was illegal. It was illegal for them to use it as artillery. So they did not use it as artillery, but that's uh, illegal for what? There wasn't one big unified China. You had lots of different warring groups and kingdoms. How did they all stick to the rules of not using their fireworks, fun time, bloody gunpowder uh, against each other? You know what, what? What was that? What was the? What was the? The, the governance pattern there and so you you ended up finding that you've got a lot of the warfare was highly ritualized and it was a lot of uh sort of honor rituals of, you know, individuals fighting each other and, and making beautiful poetry about it um, and lots of strategizing and moving around and you get, you know, the art of war and all this sort of stuff. Um, so you ended up with, instead of innovating, which I think a lot of people, and here's the problem where confirmation bias in the stuff that you're talking about, people will be focusing on the innovation as, well, why didn't they make bombs? Uh, so who actually, you know, progressed with the technical, technological innovation? Well, those people, by acting within those boundaries, legally and in a, in ritualised ways with each other, they were actually able to have increase in uh, in, in uh, psycho technologies of innovation that the West found to be primitive. But now people are rediscovering as well. Wow, Sun Tzu is is pretty freaking amazing. Um, so the technologies that they developed were psycho technologies. You know, were um, Uh, heuristics were you know uh, theories you know things like this Uh, big stories you know good stories and so they increased their complexity within those cultures and that's where the advancement lay so that you ended up with people who you know actually had sanitation (laughs) and were very cleanly clean and long-lived and had pretty amazing cultures Uh, you know whereas you know, the, the culture that's looking at that and saying it's primitive because they didn't make a freaking cannon, these guys turned up with their cannons on our beach just a couple of centuries ago, bleeding from their eyeballs and arses, couldn't manage to hardly crawl up the beach. And when they did build a, a village, they were still throwing their shit out in the street because they hadn't discovered sanitation yet. And their medicine that we're supposed to be grateful for that they brought here the extent of it was bloodletting. You know, they were nicking a vein in their arm to let the evil spirits out. These were I- incredibly primitive people who, but uh, under the rubric that you're talking about, they would be called an advanced civilization because they had freaking muskets, you know, because they, oh, they they invented advanced technology, you know. Um, but, you know, the Chinese had the same technology. They just used it for fireworks instead. They all made an agreement And somehow managed, even with their deadliest enemies, they managed not to compromise the commons, not to fall into that mistake of multipolar traps and wipe each other out. And they got to actually increase uh, the complexity of their civilization. Um, This is something that the West is yet to learn.
0: Well, uh, Joe Henrik, uh, have you encountered the acronym WEIRD, Western Educated Industrial...
2: Yeah. Industrialized rich, democratic. Yeah, I'm 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 most of the way through that book. Uh what's his name? Henrik?
0: Yeah, Joe Henrik.
2: Ah, beautiful, absolutely beautiful
0: book. And in his other book, The Secret of Our Success, he has a whole chapter on European explorers mm. who basically they become shipwrecked and there they are in some hostile climb for them. And, you know, being European and whatever intelligence they might have as individuals, I didn't remotely enable them to survive. They could only survive Based on the kindness of the indigenous people who had been living there for a long, for a long time. Now that's because he also tells a story. Not know how to go too much into this. This is actually a real event in which uh, a very remote Inuit population in like northern Greenland suffered from an epidemic that took out all the elders, and so a lot of the wisdom from that culture got knocked out. And and it just results in a loss of the cultural toolkit. You know they didn't actually know how to build kayaks and igloos as well as they did before, and it was and they didn't easily recover that knowledge because that was actually a multi generational process that generated that that knowledge. They had to get it from some other population when they when they finally get contacted. So
2: and that's the secret with the distributed syndicated systems.
0: The secret of our success is our cultures.
2: You know, um, that's important because it means nothing's, it means it's an anti-fragile system because we're interdependent, not just within our tribes, but between our tribes. Even the people we have warfare with, we still have, you know, ambassadors in there who are, you've got people in different clans there who are keeping the entire knowledge of your tribe, even if we're at war who are keeping that on the off chance that there might be a, a red tide or something and uh, your tribe will get wiped out, it will be able to be replaced again. And that knowledge of that place will be able to um, come back up. Yeah.
0: So I think that the way I could, uh, cause we can go on forever, but I think we probably want to uh, uh, wrap it up. Your children are starving, so you need to get back to them. So uh, so I, I, uh, um, I think that what I love about this conversation, is that there's a lot of common ground in the way that we're talking. And that uh I think that the more we can have a single conversation, which is what your book is all about, what your what what you do is all about, um that um that we can, because what we're talking about is basically general principles, very general principles. Which were manifesting in all of these different contexts, all of these, an indigenous context, a modern context, and so on. But I I, I do want to make a point, I think, if you can just stay with me for another minute, that what's so very important, what's so very important for all of us, and you don't even have to use the E word to be able to say this, is to be able to recognize both function and dysfunction where they exist. You don't want to have a category error where you're looking at something that's dysfunctional and you try to render it as functional. So this could be true to a machine. If it's a machine that's well working, then it's functional. If it's broken down, then it's not. And something is needed to fix it. And very often, I think, of course, that's a clear cut case, that we're looking at something that's cultural or in nature or in nature. And we just Think it should be functional. We think it should be harmonious, and so we we impose that expectation onto it. When in fact it wasn't functional. No, I'm sorry, it wasn't. It was exploitative, let us say, or it was just something that didn't work. It was a mismatch, you know, a cultural mismatch. We know about we know about those. It was the fish out of water phenomenon. Fish flapping around on land is not functional. Don't pretend that it is. And so, uh, and so, the that ability to recognize the presence and absence of functional organization. Why is it so important? Is because the entire need is to bring functional organization into being where it does not currently exist. And that's especially at the global scale because it's a global society that we're working towards. And, and the reason we don't have it is because of emus of various sizes Including leviathan emus, emus that are running amok and that need to be restrained. That's dysfunction. Don't. Uh, there's no function there. That's just. That's just chaos. That's just there's chaos. That. And so, and so, I think that's the the and it's it's um, and there's all kinds of just so stories that are out there. What's the difference between a just so story and a? I mean, it's so interesting that. The, one of the things I noticed about your book, Tyson, and it's true for any storyteller, anyone who tells a story, is the imperative need to make a connection between your story and the action that it motivates. And if you don't do that, then you'll lose your reader. You just won't sell books is what, mm. is what you will what'll, what'll, what'll happen. And so that connection between the story, basically the narrative and so on, and the actions that it motivates, that, that is such a, an imperative in human psychology that when any one of us is in a position to tell a story, if we're not making a connection, we'll lose the reader is what we'll do. Mm -hmm. And so the stories have to have that, that functional quality of motivating action. But then in addition, in this world, in this day and age, they need to be have a degree of scientific authenticity as well, and we really have to avoid the, the stories that that they do a good job of motivating behavior but the fact is you know they 're kind of made up they're, we call that fake news well
2: what i what I like about uh, science the, sci- the scientific method is it's um attempt to control for observer effects, and I mean that 's really important, and what I like about uh, contemporary science. It's different from those pseudo sciences that arose, you know, a century, two centuries ago. You know, where you could, you know, uh, an anthropologist could be on a ship. You you you'd land on in New Guinea um, with a big, neighbor, like like a, a fleet of ships with a massive standing army, and then you come and clear a big pile of uh, area of coast, claim that, set up a set up a settlement, displace a whole heap of people who then have to flee inland. Um, you know, who, who are then refugees who are, end up fighting with other people. And then all those people realise, oh, my God, that's a massive standing army. We're going to have to come together and form some kind of standing army of our own. And so a temporary hierarchy forms. And then you send your anthropologists in and then they go, oh, look, this is the great chief of chiefs here. Hey, they have the same hierarchies that we have. It's just natural. Oh, look, there are very warlike people. They're, they're some of them are eating each other. You know, could it be because they're freaking hungry because you destroyed their freaking la- yam fields and there's a whole heap of refugees? No, So there's a lot of re- observer effects there that modern science would, uh, would absolutely control for and and sort out really quickly. But, you know, um, unfortunately, there are a few of the narratives from the pseudosciences of, uh, of centuries ago that are still kind of polluting, you know, the foundations of our disciplines. And it's very good to, uh, you know, do the natural experiments you're talking about and look back before and uh, kind of rerun those ones. You know, um, and control for those.
0: We need to acknowledge that. Uh, here's another um, a universal statement. It's hard for anyone to see past their own culture, past, present, or future. And so, and so that means that we have to really talk about emu behavior. It's not intentional emu behavior. It's just we can't. It's 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 so hard, is what it what it is. And so, therefore, unless we're and first of all, unless we're inclusive in the scientific community. That's the first thing we have to expand the whole scientific enterprise uh, uh to include non so called non weird cultures in addition to to uh uh to weird cultures and then it's just it's just basically it's it's um it's uh, it's checking each other's story- helping each other see past the tissue of our own cultures uh it's very hard to do that for memories of a culture to see past their own assumptions. And so therefore it's a, it becomes a multicultural collective um, effort and that's needed. That's
2: thing. Well, that's another thing that modern science is doing really well. It's, um, you know, a, able to facilitate dialogue across lots of different disciplines and uh, across vast spaces as well in different cultures. It's, I think science is doing very well at that. And, um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm totally on board with that project
0: yeah and i think that this uh this conversation will contribute to it and i hope that as we do our things um including organizational things uh then uh, we'll find ways to uh to uh, uh to work together so this won't be a one off conversation so this will be something where we can um,
1: find ways to uh to uh, uh
0: continue to work
1: hearing you talking about these you know these ideas of function versus dysfunction and um I, I, my question is, um, you know, and then you've, you know, you've used the words universal and global, um, and I, um, you know, and we've also talked, we've covered throughout this conversation, you know, that sort of balance between, um, you know, the local and the, uh, you know, the interdependent holes and so, you know, global versus local, um, and so, I'm, I'm sort of thinking about, you know, like localization and diversity and, um, you know, agency and freedom. And, um, and I, my question is, is, is it possible to, to sort of arrive at, you know, I don't think it needs to be said that there is a global and universal understanding of what signifiers of function versus dysfunction are you know like what signifies harm what signifies well-being what are the sort of the um the the indicators that we need to kind of um be able to sort of read um you know the, as information within our local and diverse kind of you know centers of knowledge and you know um that that kind of inform that we have a global agreement on what constitutes um, function and dysfunction for everybody so that we're not kind of, so that we are kind of keeping, um, you know, harms in check. Um, and I think that's probably really the challenge that that we are probably faced with, um, you know, is, is just kind of saying, well, what are we, at, where's the extent to... Um, where are the limits of 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 sort of like the costs? You know, like the um, what can when is it okay to sort of start encroaching into harm? When is it okay to enslave people? When is it okay to um, you know, to have sort of people in um, you know, living below the poverty line, um, you know, and all of these questions of uh, when is it okay to sort of to, um, accept that, you know, the entire East coast of Australia is, is, you know, on fire. And then, you know, on the opposite side of the world, you know, um, as the, as the globe sort of rotates, you know, the, the East coast of, you know, um, what's now known as, you know, the United States is on fire or, you know, and all of these kinds of, you know, questions like, when are we going to sort of, um, I, I guess, uh, Start coming together to say let 's agree you know because we 've got Kyoto um, agreements and um, and governments that are kind of you know sort of saying well we 're going to sign on to that environmental sort of um, global policy, but we 're not and you know we're <sighs> and I, and I know that these conversations are happening at sort of global levels, but I think there's an issue when you 've got p- you know, people in positions of political power who just refuse to play the game. And clearly we are seeing that, you know, representative democracy is is sort of failing. Um, you know, I don't know that there are any sort of systems of governance that are effectively addressing the meta crisis that we're seeing ourselves in, um, you know, in the world at the moment. And so I think the, the questions are when do we, what are our protocols globally for recognizing those, um, yeah, signifiers of of dysfunction?
0: Before I address that, um, Megan, which is not to say that I have answers, uh, I wanted to get back to this, some kind of social brain. Th- this idea of a social brain, because there's a version of it that's going to be another one, another conversation that you can listen to. It's called the social baseline hypothesis, and it goes like this. The one constant of human evolution was to be a part of a small and largely cooperative group, even when those groups were warring with other groups. We occupied all these different niches, so much differed, but the one constant is that we existed never alone as individuals, always in the context of small and, for the most part, highly cooperative groups. And as a result, the genetic evolution of our brains and bodies seamlessly integrates into uh, personal and social resources. Our brains and bodies don't distinguish between our personal resources and our social resources. and the, as a result of that, that if you isolate an individual and you truly remove them from a cooperative group context, the brain and body interprets that as an emergency situation. And the most therapeutic thing you can do is simply return the ant to its colony, return the person to the small cooperative group. So much good can take place when that's where the, the self-regulation No, no, it's always group regulation in this context. And everything that we associate with cognition, like decision making, memory, perception, actually is a group level phenomenon. Distributed memory, I mean, you have a fine sense of that from indigenous societies. You don't, everything you need to know is not in your head. <clears throat> absolutely not. It's all in other heads. You have to get it from there and so on. So so this is the sense in which the idea of a social brain, a group mind, collective this, collective that, as far as our psychology is concerned, is something we have to rediscover. It turns out that the social psychologists of a century ago knew this better than we do because of individualism, basically. So Methodological individualism in the social sciences caused us to forget this. So, this is a social brain hypothesis worth wanting, um, and which is uh, has real validity. Now, there might be other social brain hypotheses that don't, but I just wanted to get that uh, out there. And the um, to return to your, and then I'm having a wonderful conversation about that with two um, experts, Jim Cohen and. And, uh, and let me just give you my favorite experiment, the two, two, if you don't mind, because they're so wonderful. Um, uh, Jim is a clinical neuroscientist, so he puts people in fMRI machines and things like that. But he also sees clients. And so he had a client who was an old World War II veteran and who was suffering from late-onset trauma, post-traumatic stress, And the old man wouldn't do anything that Jim asked him to do. He was just totally unresponsive to therapy. And and then he says, I want my wife with me. And so Jim had never had this request before. He'd only treated individuals. And so he said, Yes. And first he treated his wife as a bystander. And the old man was no more responsive than before. And then his wife said, Let me hold his hand. And so she did. And immediately he opened up to, Therapy. And Jim was amazed and he wanted to know what went on in the brain of this man caused by holding hands. And so he embarked upon a set of experiments for which he's become famous, in which he'll put people in an fMRI machine. He'll threaten them with electric shock with electrodes strapped to their ankles so their brain is going crazy. And he does that under three conditions alone, holding the hands of a stranger. Or holding the hands of a loved one. And holding the hand of a loved one has this tremendous calming effect because there's a social resource in addition, and the brain is just automatically accounting for that, all subconscious accounting for that. And that's what caused Jim to come up with his social baseline hypothesis. And the the other experiment by his colleague, Dennis, uh, Dennis Prophet, takes people to the base of a long hill and you ask them to estimate the slope of the hill. So they do. And then you do that under conditions in which you deplete their personal resources, like fasting or wearing a heavy backpack or doing a workout. Your personal resources have been depleted. And it turns out that the way we're wired perceptually is not only are we less interested in climbing a hill, we actually perceive it as more steep, so if you if you deplete your personal resources, you actually estimate its slope as higher or lower if you if you add resources that's just the way we're made and so against that background, we add a fourth condition: you or you standing with a friend standing next to you, and if you put the friend next to you, what do you think happens? The slope of the hill goes down just as if we so that, that seamless integration between personal resources and social resources, which takes place beneath our conscious awareness is what it means for the individual brain to be not an autonomous unit, not an autonomous unit, is hooked up with others, with cooperative others. That's how we're made as a, as a, as a species.
2: Unilateral action within that, that's what, um, uh, that's what kind of, you know, sidesteps the maximum power principle, you know, um, uh, uh, and, and all of the checks and balances that you have in the law of the land, you know, as, as natural laws and even the laws of physics, you know, this is how the destruction of, of systems occurs, you know, through that unilateral action. And you think you're innovating, but you're really just that, you know, hypothetical lion that's suddenly a hundred times stronger and faster and can only result on everything on the Serengeti being wiped out. You know what I mean? Um, you're, you, you can't power up beyond what the rest of your community is doing as an individual. But not, And when I say community, I don't mean just your like community. I mean human, non-human, your place, the land, everything around you. So I can show you this uh, very quickly, a natural experiment that I've been doing. Actually, it's not natural at all. It's an unnatural experiment. Sorry. I, um, yeah, but it's a, it's a kind of a practical experiment that I've been doing in this, um, like a physical thought experiment um, in unilateral innovation. So what I wanted to do was to uh, look at something that I decided was a problem uh, in my culture and then make a new innovation, a new technology in my traditional culture um, unilaterally that I would introduce. So I'm, you know, so I'm looking at this and I'm going, well, this could be more efficient. Why do I have to carry a spear thrower and a club and a throwing stick and a digging stick? Um, why can't I, you know, and, and a little spear, a, a short spear? What if, what if I combined all of these things so that I only had to carry one implement? I could have this like blackfellow Swiss Army knife. All right, so I actually made it. I created this this uh, abomination. It's that's quite pretty, and I think if I unleashed this upon my culture, um, this would destroy entire landscapes. And you're thinking, well, how? That's the, obviously that's a really good innovation. That means instead of having to carry eight implements, you've just got it all there in one. You just have to have this and your spear, and you're all good you know, because mm, mm, mm. it flies really well, it's a good throwing stick, it digs really well, you know, I can spear stingray with it if I'm stuck without a spear, or I can use it to throw a spear, it's a really good woomera, you know, I've got a club, I can fight with it, I can dig with it, I can do everything. But it would destroy our entire landscape because all of those tools, you need that diversity in those tools. That's come from a landscape and a culture that's embedded within a landscape. Each of those tools is made from different uh, plants, different trees, different woods in different seasons, and that human activity acting upon those plants in those landscapes um, actually has an impact on the environment. It directs you towards uh, what areas of the landscape you have to burn and at what time. So what I would be doing by introducing this amazing innovation to my culture would be within a few hundred years, completely destroying the landscape, completely destroying the culture. I would be, um, I would be unraveling traditions that were thousands of years old. Uh, that are mapped into a landscape, I would be undoing a whole heap of stories and everybody would be walking around with one of these and the people who had them initially would gain a competitive advantage over the other people in the tribe and then those ones would have to do that and then it would be a race to the bottom because someone's got to make the next one now. It's like, God damn it, how can I work a fire stick into this so I can, you know, and then that guy would be the one on top and then it would be a race to the bottom and then we're all dead. So I've made this abomination that could completely destroy our people. This is the WMD right here of our culture. And the WMD is unilateral action, unilateral innovation, individual genius. These things are, um, you know, the, these, these things are world killers and you've got to watch out for them. Like Megzi said, she can't even exercise on her own. you got to bring people along with you. And I think you're saying the same thing too, bro.
0: You know, I think we should just end it here. And that's serious point. You, uh, so what we're not going to do, world peace. We'll leave that out. And so, uh, uh, so uh, we've done everything else. And so uh, I think we'll leave world peace until the next time. How's that?
1: Thank you for listening to this episode of Science of the Noosphere. We
0: greatly appreciate your interest and support. To learn more, visit us at
1: humanenergy.io.